today. It's feeling good? Awesome. It's great to see all of you who are in the room. Wonderful to see you. And those of you who are on live stream, it's great to be together that way. I also see there's some folks who are coming in the back still. And so if I could just ask you guys to do this, if you would just, if you don't mind, if there's some space around you, if you want to do the old scooch, uh, that'd be awesome. If you don't mind, uh, just kind of cozy up next to the person next to you, uh, maybe to make some space if there's people who are making their way in. Also, if you're watching online, if you want to scooch too, just so you feel like you're part of the experience, uh, you can go ahead and do that. But, uh, but no, for real, we're so excited to have you guys here today. I also wanted to say congratulations to the families who just did the parent commissioning. Uh, that is so cool to be able to see parents kind of raise their hand and say, uh, I want to make disciples in my own home. And we definitely believe here at Grace that parents have such an incredible spiritual impact in the life of their kids, and we love to partner with parents and try to make that impact. So very, very thankful for you guys. And I'm really excited because today, you guys, we are actually finishing a very long set of sermons that we have been in through the book of Acts. And so if you have been with us from the beginning, I think, I think you need to go ahead and congratulate yourself. Give yourself a round of applause because you made it. You made it through the whole series, and that's awesome. But we have been in the book of Acts for a long time. It's actually been several weeks, even months, that we've been looking at the book of Acts together. So today marks the end of that series, meaning that next week we're going to be starting a brand new series that we are super excited about. Uh, some of you maybe uh, heard last week, or you may have gotten an email from me uh, this past week about the next series that we're starting. Uh, next week, we're going to do a series that's actually different than what we typically do here at Grace. So next week begins something that we call a vision series. And what a vision series is, why it's a little bit different, is it's basically a series where we want to take some time to identify the moment that we find ourselves in, a, in as a church. Where, where are we currently right now? And then we also identify the opportunities that we believe are in front of us and how we together corporately can move into those opportunities together. So I want you to kind of get the, this idea that if you're part of the Medina East Campus family, if you call this place home, uh, next week is going to begin one of those series that is uh, the whole family, we need everyone in the van because we're going somewhere kind of series. And so really, really pumped about that. You're not going to want to miss that. That begins next week. And I'll actually talk a little bit more about that at the end of today's message. But like I said, we've been looking at the book of Acts for several weeks, and you might be asking the question, why is it that you would take so much time, uh, so many weeks, to go through one book of the Bible, like the book of Acts? And here's what we've been saying, if you kind of missed it. We said the book of Acts is actually very, very unique and very, very important. It's a unique book in, in, in your Bible in this. Uh, the book of Acts actually records for us the first 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And consequently, it also reveals to us the first 30 years of the early church. And so what we see in the book of Acts is we actually see the origin of what we would call Christianity today. We see the origin of the church as Jesus commissioned it. And we said that the reason we, it's important for us to go to the book of Acts is because the book of Acts is going to help us rediscover some things, right? If, if the book of Acts is showing us what the church was originally all about, what, what, what Christianity was originally all about, I think you guys probably know this, like many things in life, it is very easy to drift from what something is originally all about. And so because of that, it's important to periodically go back and revisit and rediscover what something originally was. And that's why Acts is so significant and so important. And we said this, we said the book of Acts is specifically gonna help us rediscover three things. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. We said the first thing is Acts is gonna help us rediscover the message of Jesus. So in other words, Acts is gonna help us see what was the original message that Jesus gave to his followers to the early church that revolutionized the world? 
What was that message? So the book of Acts is also gonna help us rediscover the mission. What was the mission that Jesus sent his disciples on in the early church? What were they to be all about in the world? Acts is gonna help us rediscover that. We said Acts is also gonna help us rediscover the methods of Jesus. How does Jesus want his message and his mission to be proclaimed and advanced in the world around us? The book of Acts is gonna help us see that. And that's actually what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. And if you, if you missed any of those conversations, by the way, you can always go back and you can listen to those. They're, they're, they're all online and we'd love for you to do that. But today, as we close out our series, I wanna talk about one final method that I think the book of Acts is gonna to reveal to us of how Jesus desires to proclaim his message and advance his mission in this world today. I think Acts shows us this, and this is what it is. I'm gonna give you the bottom line right from the very beginning, and then I'll show you where we see this in the book of Acts. But here's the bottom line. Jesus' chosen method, so we're gonna look at today, to proclaim his message and to advance his mission in this world is through his people. It's through his people. And let me just say that again, because again, this is the bottom line of what we're trying to say today. Jesus' chosen method, the method that Jesus chooses to use to proclaim his message and to, and to advance his mission in his world is his people. Now, I know that if you've been here for this whole series, that doesn't sound surprising to you. In fact, if you've been with us, you probably thought, well, actually, that's kind of obvious. Like when you, when you read the book of Acts, that seems like that's kind of obvious. But, but the reason I wanna spend a lot of time thinking about this today is because I think if you actually stop and think about this statement, that we're putting on the screen right now. If you actually really think deeply about it, I think what you're gonna see is that this can actually result, this, this, this statement can actually result in a little bit of confusion and a little bit of tension. Because by saying this, by saying that Jesus' chosen method to proclaim his message and advance his mission in this world is through his people, is actually to be saying two things at the same time. And what are the two things? These two things that are 100% true at all times, and it's this, number one, that Jesus' mission does not ultimately depend on us. So that's what it means. It means that it's Jesus' mission. It's Jesus' message. It's Jesus' thing. But at the very same time, it also means this, that Jesus' mission won't be done without us. And these two things, and I know when I put them up here, if you think about it, it sounds paradoxical. It sounds like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth when I say this, but these two things are 100% true at all times. In a lot of ways, I almost think about it like the relationship, the relationship between your belt and your pants. You know what I mean? You're like, my, my pants are holding up my belt, my belt's holding up my pants. Like, who's doing the work here? And sometimes I think it kind of feel that way. Because what we're saying is the mission ultimately doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus. But at the very, time, very same time, we're saying that it won't be done without us. It won't be done without us. So how is it that both of those things are 100% true at the same time? But what you're gonna see page after page to the book of Acts and page after page throughout scripture is that that is exactly the case, is that these two things are true at the same time. Now, there's a lot of places we could go in the Bible where I could demonstrate this dynamic, but there's one place I wanna take you to today that I actually think gives us a very helpful window where you see both of these things at work at the same time. So the passage I wanna take you to is Acts chapter 18. That's where we're gonna go this morning. And we're gonna spend pretty much our entire time in Acts 18. So if you got a Bible, I would encourage you to open it with me to Acts 18. If you did not bring a Bible, that's totally cool. You can use one of the Bibles that are under the chairs. You're gonna find Acts 18 on page 900. And so you can use one of those Bibles. And let me just say this too. We say this every week and I love saying it. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have one. So you can just take one of those Bibles, read it, make it a gift from us to you. 
we would love for you to have that. So Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to go, page 900. All right, so we're going to start off in verse 1, and we're going to see uh, kind of what transpires here in Acts 18. So here's how it begins. It says this. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. All right, so let me just hit pause there for a moment and give you some context. So we always talk about this at Grace. It's important whenever you're reading the Bible to know a little bit about the context because context helps determine meaning. And so let me tell you what's going on. The Apostle Paul is this guy who was a follower of Jesus, and he basically traveled around the ancient world telling people about Jesus and planting churches. He starts in Jerusalem, and now by the time you get to Acts 18, the Bible is going to say that he is in Greece, that he is in Athens. And now he's leaving Athens, and the Bible says he's going to this place called Corinth. Okay, now let me just kind of give you a little bit of what's going on in Corinth. And I think, again, I think it's important to understand the setting. I want you to get this in your imagination because I think it actually helps make sense of what's about to happen next. Okay, so Corinth was a very, very interesting city in ancient times. It's still a city. You can still visit it today. In fact, let me show you where it's at on a map. I just got this off of Google Maps. So this is Corinth right here. You can see it sits in a really, I don't know if you can see on this map because it's kind of small, but it sits in this really small piece of connecting land between Greece and the Peloponnesus. So it's right here. And the reason that that's such a significant location is because back in ancient times, if you wanted to travel or trade the world, the way that you would do that is by boat, right? So if you want to travel around the, the ancient world, you would travel the Mediterranean Sea. Well, the, the, what was interesting is, let's say you wanted to go from Rome to like Turkey or something like that. Well, the most direct route would actually be to go through here. But the problem was, is when you got to Corinth, there was a one mile land gap that you couldn't get through. So sailors would have to circumnavigate all the way around the Peloponnesus, which added all kinds of time and danger because they were in the open seas. So they tried to figure out what is a way that we can get our boats across this one mile land gap. In fact, I'll just show it to you. This is an aerial view of Corinth today. So this is one mile land gap. And they said, how are we gonna cross that? Well, of course, today, they actually, uh, in the 1800s, dug a canal which you can see in this map. Um, let me give you a close-up of this thing. Look at this, crazy. So they actually dug this channel and they'll, you know, they'll pull these ships through and it's just a way to kind of eliminate time and, and, and danger for, for boats and those kind of things. But they didn't have this back in Paul's time. So what they did is actually pretty brilliant. They actually built something that was kind of like a road with um, what looked like railroad tracks, wooden railroad tracks. And they would actually grease these things up with animal lard and then they would hook your boat up to a set of oxen and the oxen would pull your boat across this one mile land gap. And that was the city of Corinth. Now, as you can imagine, and this is, probably doesn't take much imagination to figure this out, because all of the world trade at that time converged at Corinth, everyone would come to Corinth, people were coming and going through Corinth. Uh, this made Corinth a huge city. This place was massive in ancient, it's not very big today, but in ancient times, it was five times the size of Athens. It was nearly as big as Rome, which Rome is obviously one of the biggest cities that we know in, uh, in ancient times. It was huge. And so you can imagine, people from all over the world were there. So it was multi-ethnic. It was multi-religious. There was all kinds of worldviews that were represented in this place. And as you can also imagine, probably doesn't take much imagination on this, if you have guys that are out at sea that are sailing for weeks at a time, and then they come ashore to a big city with a bunch of money in their pocket. These guys are ready to partay. And that is exactly 
what they did. In fact, the, probably the thing that the, uh, the city of Corinth was most known for is it was known for being a crazy, wild, licentious place. You can actually think about it this way. Um, Corinth was sort of like the ancient day Las Vegas. And it was known for its materialism. It was known for its wealth. And maybe more than anything, it was actually known for its prostitution. And so they actually had temple prostitutes. They called them priestesses. I was reading one historian. They said uh, they had over a 1,000 of these, these temple prostitutes. They would walk around the cities of Corinth with these clogs on their feet. So they click clack through the city. And the back of their clogs said, follow me. And it was a way of seducing and alluring uh, the people into, you know, whatever it might have been. It, it, was, it was such a wild city and it had such a reputation that the Romans actually had a saying. And this was their saying. They said, to, to visit Corinth is to be defiled. That was their saying. Which is actually kind of crazy if you think about it. Because if you guys know anything about the Romans, they were into some freaky stuff. And they're like, we're not like the Corinths. We're not like the Corinthians, what those guys would be. And I want you to get this picture in your mind because I actually think that's important because the Bible tells us that Paul, rather than being repelled by that, moves into that to tell these people about Jesus. So what happens? Well, check this out. The Bible says there, when he got to Corinth, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but when they opposed Paul and they became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God. Crispus, there's a name for you. I love that. If you're looking for baby names, how about Crispus? I'm just saying, all right? Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed, and they were baptized. Okay, now, uh, we just read a lot, and there's a lot of things that happened, and you saw a bunch of names that are in there. So let me just summarize what we just read. So Paul gets to Corinth. He's never been there before. He starts to network with some people when he gets there, and he starts preaching the gospel in the synagogues to the Jewish people. That's what Paul was Paul's custom. The Bible tells us that as he's preaching, he experiences opposition and even abuse, the Bible says that he even experiences abuse. But then the Bible says that he keeps preaching. And as he does, all of a sudden you see things change. And the Bible says that many of the Corinthians, many of them come to know Jesus and they believe and they're baptized. To which you would think, and I would think, Paul must have been absolutely thrilled. He must have been like, yes, how cool is this? I come into the city, I start preaching the gospel. There's some, sure, there's some opposition and those kind of things, but now there's real, there's real movement. People are actually coming to know Jesus. But I'll tell you what's fascinating is the very next verse actually gives us indication into what was going on in the Apostle Paul at this moment. Look, look what it says. I think this is so fascinating. Verse nine. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. So the Lord Jesus himself comes to Paul in a vision. And what does he say? Now look at this. This is so fascinating. He says, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't, be silent. Now, I think this is really interesting, you guys. Here, we have indication that in the midst of all of this ministry success that Paul is experiencing, he's scared. 
The Bible seems to tell us that he's, he's, he's afraid, he's scared, which is noteworthy. I think it's noteworthy because if, you're, if you guys are anything like me, if you guys have been reading the book of Acts throughout the last couple of weeks with us, sometimes we can get this impression that Paul was just like this totally fearless guy. I mean, he, he seems so fearless. I mean, you guys remember like there's this one occasion in Acts 14, if you haven't read it before, Paul goes into this city and he starts telling people about Jesus and the people turn on him and they start to stone him to death. They start to throw rocks at him and they think he's dead. So they pick him up and they put him outside of the city. But then he's not dead because he wakes up and he's like, I'm not dead yet. And instead of, instead of running away, he goes back. He goes back into the city and he's like, where did I leave off? And he keeps, pre- and you're like, this guy has got some chutzpah. He's got some guts. And yet, I think it's interesting. The Bible tells us here, he's scared. He's scared. Which I don't know, maybe it's just me, but for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone's a follower of Jesus here today, I actually find that encouraging. I do. That not only can God use flawed people and imperfect people and broken people like us, but he can also use scared people. That helps me. Because I don't know about you, sometimes I find myself, I'm scared. I get, I get scared to, to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is. And you see that happen here. So what does Jesus tell him? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. And, 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 and what does he say to help comfort Paul in his fear, to give him confidence? Look what he says. This is crazy. Jesus says, for I am with you. I'm with you. And no one's gonna attack or harm you. Now check this out. Because I, Jesus says, I have many people in this city. And then the Bible says that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And again, you guys, I think that right here in these three verses, we have a window into this very interesting dynamic. There are two things that are happening that are 100% true here. Do you see it? You read this and you're like, when I read this, I'm like, now hold on a minute. Who is doing what here? Who is responsible for what? Because here's Jesus and Jesus says to Paul, I have many people in this city. In other words, he's saying, this is my mission. This is my endeavor. This is my work. This is my initiative. And yet he says to Paul, so you keep on talking. You keep on speaking. You keep on proclaiming the truth about me. And I think once again, you see two realities that are 100% true that are happening at the same time. Jesus's mission does not ultimately depend on us. It's his At the very same time, it won't be done without us. So here's what I wanna do with the rest of the time that we have together. As I actually just wanna think about, I wanna kind of brainstorm a little bit about what happens when we overemphasize or de-emphasize one of these two realities. What happens when we don't hold both of these truths together and we tend to emphasize one or de-emphasize another? And here's what I believe. I believe that if we overemphasize or de-emphasize one of, these, one of these two truths, I think what happens is it can lead to unhealthy conclusions, and I think it can lead to unhealthy patterns of thinking and living for those of us who follow Jesus. Right? So maybe a helpful way to explain what I'm saying is actually to use this chart that I've adapted. Okay, So it's just a way for us to kind of think about this together. I want you just to kind of brainstorm with me. Very, very simple chart. You can think about it in quadrants. All right, So here you have a kind of a vertical axis, a vertical spectrum. God has a big part on one end. God has a small part on the other side. Then over here, humans have a small part. 
And then on the other, uh, the opposite end of this horizontal axis, humans have a big part. All right, so let's just think about it. What happens when we believe that God has a big part, we, we focus on that, but then we de-emphasize our part. And we say, well, I just have a small part. Well, I think, you guys, what this can lead to is it can lead to something that I call super spirituality, super spirituality. So you might be saying, what is that? Here's what super spirituality is. Super spirituality is basically me saying, listen, it's all up to God. Um, God, God is, God's already got it under control. Whatever, God already has a plan. He already has promises. He already knows what's gonna happen. So I don't really have any part. So what does it matter whether I do something or not? It doesn't really matter whether I take any action because God's already got it and it's already in his hands. So it doesn't matter whether I do something or I don't do something because God's in control. I would call that super spirituality. And I gotta tell you, to some extent, this is actually kind of appealing. And the reason it's appealing is because it's kind of true. I mean, there's, there's some of that that's really true. For sure, this whole thing depends on God. It depends on Jesus. It is up to him. I mean, you guys saw verse 10. Jesus said, I have many people in this city. Jesus says, I already know that I have many people in this city. Because there's other passages, like in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus promised, he said, my message is gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He promised that would happen. Jesus, in Matthew 16, said, I will build my church. Not you, not us. He said, I. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for sure, for sure, it depends on Jesus. It's up to him. And some people have taken that logic that I just gave you and they've concluded and they've said, well, if Jesus has already decided what's gonna happen, if Jesus has already promised what's gonna transpire, then what difference does it make if we actually do anything? Why does it matter if, doesn't that negate any human activity at all? And I think what happens is that leads to disengagement. We disengage, we disengage the mission. I know Jesus said, that we should tell others about him. I know Jesus said that we should make disciples. Uh, we believe that parents, for example, can actually make a real spiritual impact in the life of their children. But what can happen is we can say, well, if God's already got it under control, then it doesn't really matter whether I show up or not. It doesn't really matter whether I do that. But I want you to notice in this passage that we just read, do you guys notice that Jesus's sovereignty doesn't discourage Paul from activity? It actually encourages him into greater engagement. Do you notice this? Paul stays for a year and a half preaching because of what Jesus says to him. And you guys, I think what can happen is sometimes we can fall, for those of us who follow Jesus, we can fall into a mentality this way. Sometimes we can think, well, man, I, I know some of the things that Jesus says, but who am I? I mean, who, who am I to tell anybody about what to believe? Who am I? When Jesus, I know Jesus said that we, can make, that we should make disciples. He actually said that. But man, I... It's gotta be, he, it's up to him, it's up to him. And I, what do I know? And sometimes what can happen is we can minimize our role. And yet what this passage is saying is, no, 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 we have a very real part. This is God's method of how he wants. Okay, so what happens then, the question, when the pendulum goes the other way? What happens when we say, okay, okay, I have a big part. All right, I got a big part, but God has a small part. What happens when we de-emphasize God's role? Well, I think what this leads to is it leads to a man-centered view where we start to think that everything depends on us, 
that it depends on our skills or our talents or our winsome abilities or our, our education or our tactics or our strategies or whatever. And we start to think that it all depends on us. And I think when this happens, what it leads to is it actually leads to a very controlling mentality where we try to control the mission. We try to take it and manage the mission as it were. And of course, you guys, I think this probably goes without saying, but a failure to understand God's role always has negative consequences. It always does. What does it lead to? It leads to an overinflated view of self. And that can show up as arrogance. So sometimes we can think to ourselves, well, man, God is real lucky to have me on his team. It can also lead to deep insecurity and anxiety and panic when things aren't going the way that we think they should. It can lead to all kinds of unhealthy things when that happens. It can lead to a controlling, anxious spirit It can lead to an overemphasis of our own failures. We start to look and say, ah, I screwed it up. And man, I just, I'm just terrible. And God could, it can lead to that. It can lead to pride. It can lead to all kinds of things. But I want you to notice again, Jesus's words. What does Jesus say? He says, I have many people in this city. I do. You guys, the book of Acts is so helpful because the book of Acts helps us see. And I want you to, because this is so important. I want you to notice this. Jesus is not a retired CEO. And Jesus is not a deceased founder of Christianity. That's not how this works. Jesus is the resurrected Lord of the world. And that means that he's alive. And that means that he's engaged. And that means that he has things to say to his people. He has ways that he wants to lead us. That means that he is still actively involved in his work on this earth even to this day. I think we need to remember that, yeah, we have, for those of us who follow Jesus, we have a big part. We have a big part. But there's a whole lot that we can't control. My goodness, there's so much we can't control. Like, for example, you and I, you guys, we can't change a person's heart. Are you kidding me? We can't change it. We can't change another human being's heart. We don't have the capacity to do that. Only God can do that. Any attempt on our behalf to try to change a person is going to turn out manipulative at best. Um, we can't, you know what we can't do? We can't convict people of sin. You know, you know who the Bible says, you know who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. That's his work. We can't, in any attempt on our behalf to force conviction of sin onto another person, I think is always gonna end in disaster. You guys know what we can't do? We can't transform a human being. We can't generate life. Jesus does that. The Spirit does that, and we have to depend on him for those things. All right, so what about this then? What happens when we minimize God's part and we minimize our part? When we start to say, well, I don't know, I don't really know if I have it, and what happens when we start to doubt ourselves and doubt God's plan? Well, you guys, I think what this leads to is actually leads to cynicism. It leads to a sense of sin. There's a sense of hopelessness where we lack confidence in ourselves, we lack confidence in God, and I think the result of that is discouragement. We find ourselves deeply discouraged. And you guys, this happens sometimes. This happens, this happens to, to, to followers of Jesus sometimes. We find ourselves discouraged we, because of the environment that we're in or because of the circumstance that surrounds us. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we can't see what God is doing and it leads to deep discouragement. Can I tell you that I can't help but wonder, I have a, I have a suspicion that this is probably what's going on with the Apostle Paul in Acts 18. I think we find that he was scared because he was probably discouraged. I imagine Paul walked into Corinth, this city, the city where every form of like 
of human desire was available to you at the highest degree. You want money, you want material, you want goods, you want sex, it's all here. There's no holds barred. And Paul walks into this big city that's got all of this and he's like, I'm here to tell people about Jesus who rose from the dead. And I imagine that there's probably a sense where he thought, man, all the odds are against me. These people are never gonna follow Jesus. They're never gonna believe the message that I have to give to him. My guess is he maybe felt discouraged. And yet, Jesus says to him, he says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Keep on speaking because I have a lot of people in this. In other words, you know what Jesus, te- you know what Jesus tells Paul? He says, I am working in ways that you can't see. And even though your circumstances around you, you might not see it, I'm still doing things in the hearts and the minds of the people that are here. So you keep on speaking. Because I think sometimes, for those of us who follow Christ, we can feel this way. For some of us, when we, we, we hear that God wants to use us, he actually wants to use you. And he wants to partner with you to make a difference in the life of the people around you, your neighbors, in, in your family, in your school, in your workplace. Sometimes I think we can feel discouraged. Because for some of you, you think about your school. And you're like, do you know what my school's like? Do you know the, the kind of ideas and the kind of groups of people? Do you, do you have any idea? These are the least likely people who would ever come to know Jesus. The odds are stocked, stacked against me. And we feel discouraged. We feel cynical. For some of us, we feel that way about our workplace. Some of you are like, do you know the people I work with? Have you met them? They are, they are the least likely people on earth who would ever believe this ridiculous message about Jesus Christ raising from the dead. Do you know the people in my family? Do you know, the, and sometimes we can feel this way. But you guys, I just wanna encourage you, and I think we need to take encouragement from this passage. We never know what God is doing in the hearts and the lives of people. We don't know. Sometimes we can't see it. Can I tell you something that blew me away? Man, I wish I had more time to get into this, but I don't. But this blew me away when I was studying this past week. So after this passage happens, the apostle Paul goes out and he keeps preaching and he keeps telling people about Jesus for a year and a half. And the Bible tells us that on one occasion, he's preaching in the synagogue, and there's this synagogue leader, get this, the dude's name is, this is one of the greatest names ever, his name is Sosthenes. So that, isn't that awesome? I know you want to say it. Turn to your neighbor and say Sosthenes. It's really fun. Sosthenes. So this dude, so, and, and I'm just telling you, I wish you guys, I wish, I wish, I wish I had time to unpack the whole story, but we don't, you're just going to have to go read this on your own. So Paul is preaching And this dude, Sosthenes, is the synagogue leader. And he absolutely opposes Paul. He's like, he wants to to silence Paul. He wants to arrest Paul. And he actually launches a smear campaign to bring Paul down. He actually gets Paul on trial in front of the pro-council, this guy named Gallio. And so he gets him there because he's trying to get Paul in trouble. He's trying to get Paul arrested. He's trying to discredit Paul. He is anti-Paul, okay? This is the least likely guy on planet Earth who's gonna believe the message of the gospel. But check this out. The Bible is gonna tell us that Sosthenes tries to launch this smear campaign and it backfires on him. So, So look what the Bible says. This is verse 17. The crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and they beat him in front of the... So they just beat the snot out of him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio didn't even care. He's like, man, whatever, not my problem. And so you see this guy who's trying to, he's trying to oppress, he's trying to arrest, he's trying to, to, to work against Paul. His plan backfires, and these people just beat the daylights out of him. And I would think, and that's just me, my, my, this is true confession for me. If it were me, and this happened, I would be tempted if I was Paul, to go over to Sosthenes and be like, 
See, bro, I told you. Don't mess with me. Right? That's what I'd be tempted to do. But, but I don't think that's what he does because here's what blows, this is what's crazy. Years later, after this happens, the apostle Paul's in Rome and he's writing a letter to the Corinthians, to these people. And I want, you to show you, I want to show you how he starts his letter. This is crazy to me. He starts off, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, is what he says, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. You see what he says? He says, Sosthenes is with me. Our brother in Christ, Sosthenes. Now, some people are like, well, maybe it's a different Sosthenes. I'm like, come on. There's only one Sosthenes. That's him. You guys, the least likely guy that you could ever imagine coming to, the guy who was against Paul, the guy who was trying to get him arrested, is now a traveling companion with him on the mission. Here's my point. This is my point. You guys, who's the Sosthenes in your life? Who are the people who you're convinced they are the least likely people to ever know Jesus? And I'm saying, you never know. You never know what God is doing in the hearts and minds. I, I wonder if maybe what happened was after Sosthenes got the snot beat out of him, if Paul came up to him and was like, hey, bro, maybe there's a better way. And maybe instead of hating his enemy, he loved his enemy. And maybe rather than resisting Sosthenes, maybe he actually showed kindness like Jesus said to him. Whatever it was, we know that this guy came to know Jesus. And I'm just saying, what if we, followers of Jesus, what if we had that same mentality? What if we said, man, God's got many people in this city. God's got many people in our school. God's got many people at work. I don't always see what he's doing, but he's at work. He's at work. I think that's awesome. All right, so what about this then? What happens if we say humans have a big part and God? What happens when we believe that those two things are 100% true at the same time? What happens when we believe that Jesus's mission it doesn't ultimately depend on us. He is a big part, but that won't be done without us. What happens? Well, I think what happens here is this actually leads to healthy dependence. I think this is actually very, it's a healthy place of dependence. And I think that the result of this is that we view ourselves as partners, a partnership. That yeah, man, God is the one who's in control. He's the one who's doing the work, but he's actually invited me to take a part in what he's doing in this world. Partnership, I think is the result. And you guys, I actually think there's great evidence in the scripture that this is exactly the kind of mentality that the apostle Paul had, that he eventually had. Uh, you see it in places like 1 Corinthians 3. Let me just show you what Paul says. I love the way he says this. He says, I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos, who was another Christian, watered it, but God's the one who made it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters, they have a purpose and they each will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are God's, look at this, co-workers in God's service. And you are God's field, God's. I love what he says there. It's a great picture. He says, for those of us who follow Jesus, we're like farmers. He says, we're like farmers. Yes, we have real work to do. It's hard work to plant, to water, to do. But just like farmers, I can't make something grow. It takes, it takes an external source of energy and power. I can't look at a seed and be like, grow. I can't do that. It's, an, it's a power that's outside of myself, and yet I have a real role. I can plant, I can water, and I can be faithful in those things. It's an awesome mentality. Here you see both of those realities at place. Yes, I have a big part. Yes, God has a big part, and there's a partnership. Because I think when we start to think this way, it actually can impact us in a lot of ways. 
So for example, I think for those of us who follow Christ, it actually makes us more bold and at the very same time, less pushy. At the same time. What do you mean by that? More bold, why? More bold because we have greater confidence. We have greater confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. We believe that God is at work, that Jesus is the resurrected king, and he has, he's still working in the lives and hearts of people in ways that I don't see. And so I can step out with boldness, but I'm less pushy. Why? Because it's not about my sales tactics. Sales people trying to push her. It's not about how winsome or how clever or how witty we are. It's just about being faithful to what God is asking us to do. I think what happens is we actually become more inclined to pray and less inclined to worry. You know, if we actually believe that God has a big part and that Jesus is the one who's directing the mission, prayer is the most natural thing. It's the most natural thing for us to do. I think what Pastor Steve talked about last week. At the same time, we're also less inclined to worry. Why? Because it's not ultimately up to us. It sounds like a paradox, but I think what happens is we realize that we're less important than we think we are, and we're also a little bit more important than we think we are. And both of those things are kind of true at the same time because God wants to use us in those ways. I think what happens is we become more patient and we become less forceful. Patient, why? Because it makes all kinds of sense to wait on God. We don't, we don't always see what God is doing in the lives of other people, and so we can be patient. We can be patient. We don't have to force anything, and God allows that to happen. I think what happens is we actually become more engaged. At the same time, we experience deeper rest. This sounds paradoxical, but I think what happens is when we realize we have a real part to play, it actually causes us to be more engaged, to say, you know what, I wanna take real responsibility for the opportunities that God's put in front of me. And yet at the same time, I think it allows us to rest better. We can rest because there's a whole bunch that we can't control and there's a whole bunch that we can't own. And so I think we see that. So again, Jesus' chosen method to proclaim his message and advance his mission in this world is through his people. And before we end our time, I just wanna kind of focus on this part too. Notice that we say his people, and we don't say his person. Because I think it's really important that we understand that God doesn't just work through an individual. I think sometimes it's easy for us to read like an Acts 18, and we can be like, well, look at God use Paul. And yeah, he uses Paul. And Paul is preaching, and Paul's the guy on the stage, and Paul's the guy who's you know, going to the synagogues. And, he's, and so yeah, God can use a guy like Paul. And so God, but I think it's important that we understand that God doesn't just use a person, but he uses his people. Did you guys notice in this passage how many names were mentioned? Did you guys notice this? It's kind of breathtaking, but I just want you to kind of notice here, when he gets to Corinth, the Bible says that Paul meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And then the Bible says that later, as he's continuing his ministry, Silas and Timothy come alongside of him. And then the Bible tells us that when Paul's kicked, he's kicked out of the synagogue, And the Bible says that after he's kicked out of the synagogue, this guy named Titius Justice, who's a worshiper of God, says, that's okay, you can use my house, which is next door to the synagogue. You guys, what do you see happening here? And I wish I had time to get into all this. What you see is you see the invisible hand of God working through the network of human relationships to strategically advance his mission in this world. You guys, I wish we had time to get into all these stories. Do you guys know anything about Aquila and Priscilla? These guys are this, they're this incredible couple. And we actually know how they got to Corinth. They got to Corinth because they were expelled from Rome because of their faith in Jesus. Can you guys imagine how turbulent that was in their life? They were kicked out of their country because they believed in Jesus. But the Bible tells us that as a result, they went to Corinth. And when they got to Corinth, they met Paul. 
And Priscilla and Aquila, they go on to be lifelong ministry partners with the apostle. What is happening here? God is working through the network of these relationships, these human relationships to advance his mission in the world. And this, again, you guys, this just stresses, once again, what we talk about here at Grace all the time, and that is the necessity of Christian community. It is so critical. If we're not connected to other followers of Christ, we're missing out on what God wants to do in and through us in its entirety. And here's the most amazing thing of all of us, you guys. And with this, I'll invite the band to make their way up here. The most amazing thing is that Jesus is continuing to work in this way to this very day. This is something that Jesus is continuing to do. He is continuing his work on this earth and he wants to do it through his people. He wants to do it through his people. Can I tell you something I thought was interesting? If you guys have read the whole book of Acts, which hopefully you've done that at some point in the series, I don't know if you noticed how it ends, but the book of Acts ends in a very unsatisfying way, if you read it. It's actually kind of abrupt, and it just sort of is anticlimactic. In fact, let me show you that this is the very last verse in the book of Acts. It says that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's the end of the book. There's no conclusion. There's no, and then everyone lived happily ever after. There's no, and then Paul died. There's no, and then the mission was complete. None of that. It just kind of ends. And this has actually been something that's baffled commentators for a long time. And they have different theories as to why it ends so abruptly. Some commentators think that maybe what happened was the writer of Acts ran out of space. That he had like a scroll and like, then he like, he's like, well, I'm out of space. Just finish it now. You know, and that was like, the end of it. but I don't think that was the case. I don't think that's it. You know what I think it is? And, and quite honestly, most commentators would say this. I think what it is, is that this is intentional. That the writer of Acts intends this to be open-ended as if to say there are still chapters that are left to be written. There are unwritten chapters yet to, this is intended almost in many ways to be like a baton passing. It's intended to be saying to those who follow Jesus, it's in your court now. The baton is in your hands. It's, listen, it's your turn. Followers of Jesus, it's your turn. And I love the way one commentator put it. His name is Arthur Pearson. He said, Church of Christ, the records of these acts of Jesus have never reached completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it waits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed spirit in his holy seat of control. I love that. There are more chapters to be written. And until Jesus comes back, this is the way that he continues to work in this world. It is through the readiness, the availability, and the dependence that, that God's people have on him to follow him in his leadership into the community. And so I just want to say to the Midnight East Campus of Grace Church, you guys, it's our turn. It's our turn. That these folks at Acts were faithful to run their leg of the journey. But now it's our turn. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ is continuing his work in this world, and, it, and we're up to bat. His church in this time, in this place, we are the ones who have our time right now to follow him. And so we ask, what does it mean to be faithful and obedient to him in that? And you guys, that is what this next series is all about. This next series is about us saying collectively, God, we wanna make ourselves available to you to work collectively towards what it is that you wanna do in our world today, in and through us. Next, next week, we're gonna start that series. We're gonna talk about our opportunity that we feel is before us. We're gonna talk about the moment that we're in and how we collectively feel like we can move together towards that. 
My hope and my prayer is that we would come with open hearts, that we'd seek God for what he wants for our church in this next season. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for, man, just doing it this way. You know, I, I, it still baffles me. I, there's still a lot that I don't understand that um, why you would choose to partner with human beings to accomplish your purposes is, is quite honestly a mystery to me. It seems like maybe there'd be some more effective ways to do it, but I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that this is the way you, you choose to work because when we partner with you, we get to experience the joy uh, of knowing you, of becoming more like you. We get to experience the deep purpose in life of being used by you. And God, we also get to just experience the transformation that comes in being sanctified to be more like you. And so God, I just ask you that when you look at our church, that when you look at the Midnight East campus, that you would find a group of people who are surrendered, you would find a group of people who are dependent. You would find a group of people who are available to be used in, to be used by you, that you would work in and through us. So God, I ask you for that. And I also pray that as we have a chance to worship and sing these songs together, that the lyrics that we sing wouldn't just be stale words out of our mouths, but they'd be reflections of our prayers and our heart, our collective heart to you together. So God, we just wanna lift this up to you. We wanna ask these things in Jesus' name.